Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. iconic television series and then not so iconic movie franchise known for championing female friendships. Only behind the scenes all was not well between the women who brought us Carrie Bradshaw and Samantha Jones. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. All right, Mish, I am super excited to jump into this two-part series about Sex and the City, but particularly about Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall, because I think with the arrival of their new series, there is so much nostalgia, but also so much to unpack about why Samantha is not appearing on this new TV show. And I feel like... We might have all the answers here. We do have all the answers here, guys. And as a huge Sex and the City fan, someone who has watched every episode of the television series at least twice, I didn't know a lot about this. I kind of had some vague recollections about a bit of a feud between the women who brought us Carrie and Samantha, but I didn't have many robust details in my mind. Going back through and researching this definitely reassured me that this is not some petty, pitting women against women kind of drama. There is actual scandal here. There are actual quotes on the record of why these women have had such a tumultuous relationship for so, so long. And I'm particularly interested now. I mean, and just like that has just come out. We are hearing about it everywhere. I care about this scandal any day of the week, any day of the year, but I particularly care about it now. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And to your point about the fact that some people for so long have said that this is some concocted fight because they are two high-profile women on the same TV show, so suddenly people are concocting rumours and stories out of nowhere. For a long time, that was the narrative that was fed to us, that there was nothing here, that this is just sexism in the media. And I do believe that was the case to a point for a time. But now that we know that actually all was not always well between the two, I think it's absolutely a justifiable scandal for us to go back and talk about whether they were two men or two women. I'm really obsessed with this story. So I kind of just want to jump right in, Mish. Shall we do it? Let's do it. Let's hear the origin story of Sex and the City. All right, Mish. So one of the major reasons why Sex and the City was such an iconic and popular show was because it was pretty realistic. Now, I wouldn't say it was always 
relatable. <laughs> Anyone that's watched an episode of Sex and the City would know it's not always completely relatable when it comes to perhaps their financial circumstances or how they spent money or all of those kinds of things. But the friendship element of this TV show, I think for so many young women who watched it was the most realistic part, right? Yeah, I think it was also putting women's stories at the forefront for once. I mean, nowadays we have so many different TV shows that do that exceptionally well, but we need to put ourselves back in the 90s when Sex and the City, the TV show was picked up. This was something that we hadn't seen before and I think that's why so many women gravitated towards it. And I think one of the reasons that we found the storyline so interesting and so realistic is because some of the storylines were true. We know that the Sex and the City TV show was based on a column by New York City journalist Candace Bushnell. Yeah, so let's introduce Candace Bushnell because she actually is a really key player in this series. At the age of 19, Candace actually dropped out of university and moved to New York to pursue an acting career. But instead of acting, she actually started writing and she started writing professionally. So as so many young journos do, particularly young journos in New York. She slogged her way through entry-level jobs at Ladies Home Journal and Good (laughs) Housekeeping magazine before freelancing and eventually becoming a staff writer for Self magazine. I mean, that feels like the most classic journey when it comes to writing ever. You kind of have to slog those smaller jobs before you really land the one that you want. I also love that one of our raunchiest sex columnists, the most high-profile sex columnist, began at Ladies Home Journal. (laughs) I would love to know (laughs) what was inside that Ladies Home Journal. Anyway, Candace was always really interested in writing about gender, sex and dating. By the early 80s, so when she was in her early 20s, Candace started writing relationship content for a Condé Nast magazine. Yeah, that one was Mademoiselle. Now, Candace has said that the work she did for Condé Nast was really the precursor to sex in the city. She actually told one blog that there were a lot of young women in the workforce for the first time and there was a lot of confusion about dating and men and how women were supposed to behave in relationships. Those were the days that women were supposed to have it all. You were supposed to have a career. You were also supposed to get a man. At the same time, you were also supposed to have sex. Women were hungry for any stories about how to live their lives. And boy, did she nail that. Yeah, this might sound familiar to massive Sex and the City fans, but while Candace's career was taking off and she was a really prolific writer, that didn't mean her bank account was looking too good. Looking back on her life, Candace said that one year she only made $10,000, another year she made $14,000 and was thrown out of her sublet. Much like Carrie, the story of Candace is very interesting because all the reports say that she prioritised at this point in her life spending the little money she had on fashion. As Peter Stevenson, a former editor of the New York Observer and her ex-boyfriend told the New York Times, whatever she was paid for a piece, she would be more likely to buy a pair of $800 shoes than go out and stock up the fridge. I remember one of her staples was sardines and crackers. Yeah, at one point, Candace slept on a fold-out couch in her friend's tiny New York apartment. In return for that favour, Candace would answer that friend's landline and pretend to be her secretary. She says there were times that were so dire financially, she wasn't sure if she was going to be able to make it as a writer. She told the New York Times, when you're in that low point, you wake up every morning at 4am in a cold sweat and say, I've got to make it. I've got to make it. 
Candice's big break came in 1994 when she was 35 years old when she actually started writing a column for the New York Observer. Now, the name of that column was, of course, Sex in the City, and stories like this seem to continuously come up in scandal episodes when we go back through history in many ways, and so many of those common threads are people don't always get their big breaks in their 20s. Like, it's yeah. so good to hear stories of people in their mid-30s who are finding their big break, which was just the column. All the good stuff is still to come after that. Absolutely. So we first had this column published into the world on November 28, 1994. It was published in the Observer at the time, which was a small but influential weekly newspaper published on salmon pink paper. <laughs> I mean, don't tell us we haven't done our research <laughs> and got you really the specific details here. She told the New York Times that bagging that column was a huge deal. It was a really high profile opportunity to write about life in New York for a really respected publication. The editors ran the column on the cover of the paper, which was huge for the time. Mm. It was treating dating and gender roles and social change as front page news. Yeah. For her very first column, Candace went to a couples only sex club called La Trapeze. She invited her most recent ex-boyfriend, Sam, who was a lawyer, to come along with her. She wrote in that column, Sam was a good choice because number one, he was the only man I could get to go with me. Number two, he'd already had experience with this kind of thing. Candace actually described what they saw when they went into that club in pretty big detail. This is a quote from her piece and I really want to unpack it with you because there's a lot going on here. What did we see? Well, there was a big room with a huge air mattress upon which a few blobby couples gamely went at it. There was a sex chair unoccupied that looked like a spider. There was a chubby woman in a robe sitting next to a jacuzzi smoking. There were couples with glazed eyes, night of the living sex zombies, I thought, and there were many men who appeared to be having trouble keeping up their end of the bargain. But mostly there were those damning steaming buffet tables containing what? Mini hot dogs. And unfortunately, that's pretty much all you need to know. Mm. Quick moment here straight away. The first thing I noticed when we read these quotes from Candace is how she spoke about other people's bodies at the time. And I feel like it's really no coincidence that we have this as a precursor to Sex in the City when Sex in the City is known largely for being really problematic about the way that it spoke about women's bodies in particular. Yeah, I'd say the mid to late 90s are known in general for being really problematic about the way we spoke about people's bodies. And I think for sure, when you look back through these columns, there is definitely some obvious fat phobia laced through them. And I think it was very, very similar with the show, particularly with Carrie Bradshaw. I mean, she was always heralded as this tiny, tiny, thin woman. And I think that was such a part of her persona and such a part of why women idolized her and why she was seen as that fashion icon. For whatever reason, the time, the producers, the reluctance of the cast to push against that, I don't think they would have cast a size 10 plus woman in Carrie's role because she was deemed the fashionable one. And unfortunately, at this time in history, fashionable came along with a certain size. Well, it was heroin chic. Like that's what was going on in the fashion industry at the time. Mm. Now, Candace actually introduced her alter ego, Carrie Bradshaw, into the column at this time. It was a pseudonym that Candace created so that her parents wouldn't know that they were reading about their daughter's <laughs> sex life. In these columns, Carrie Bradshaw was described as Bushnell's friend. Yeah, which is 
kind of like living life on the edge. It's not that far away from Candace Bushnell's name, like exact same initials and everything. So interesting <laughs> that she decided to pick basically an identical name to her own. Now, around this time, Candace also wrote about her anxiety of whether it, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, it was going to happen to her. Now, it was what she referred to as a state of life where you have a successful career, you've found love, you're married, and you have a closet full of Chanel or, and I quote, even money to pay the rent. Much like Carrie Bradshaw, Candace would really go out with her girlfriends and talk about their lives. She told the New York Times, at the end of the day, inevitably three or four girlfriends would end up coming over. We'd meet up, have some laughs, and then maybe we'd go out. It was a lot of talking, spilling of our lives. Hey, this is what happened to me. We were the sex in the city women. We were in our mid-30s. We were all supposed to be married. Mm, For all her struggles, Candace Bushnell really enjoyed the heights of luxury too. She tended to summer in the Hamptons, again, very similar to Carrie Bradshaw. She dated the publisher of Vogue, who apparently was the inspiration for Mr. Big and socialised with plenty of famous people and kind of like upper-class writers. Yeah, so one night in 1995, Candace was actually out for dinner with her big shop boyfriend at the time, whose name was Ron Galotti, that publisher of Vogue we mentioned before, and some other big names, one of which was the CEO of Grove Atlantic, which is a publishing house. One of them actually asked Candace if she was ever going to write enough columns to make them into a book. Candace replied, if you give me a contract, I will. They actually slid down to the end of the table and negotiated the contract right then and there at the bar with Candace's boyfriend negotiating on her behalf. Candace recalled that one of them said, okay, I'll offer you 20K and Ron said, oh, come on, make it 25. <laughs> and so in 1996, Candace's popular columns were collected. They were collated and published in a book with the same name, Sex and the City. She later told the New York Times that writing a book was all she had wanted to do when she had moved to New York. She said, when I moved to New York City, I thought that I was just going to start writing novels and they would be published. I put everything in my life on the line so that I could publish a book and somehow make it. You know, that's the thing about Sex and the City. It's written by someone who is desperate for a roof over their head, really. Sex and the City went on to become wildly popular. As one LA Times reviewer wrote, what one forgets going back after Sex and the City became this zeitgeisty television series is it was a really well-written book. It is so good and it's not just about sex. The character descriptions are so incredibly spot on. Looking back on her column and her writing, Candace said one of the reasons it worked because it challenged traditional representations of love and like fairy tale mm. relationships. She said, I think there's a lot of pressure to depict men in a way that fits the Cinderella narrative of love and relationships and that a man is going to come through in the end. And Sex in the City was an opportunity to show the truth about men and relationships that I was not allowed to do in women's magazines and to a certain extent in women's publishing. Mm, one publisher even said that Candace's columns were so influential that they actually came at a seminal moment in history for women. They said professional women not marrying at the earliest age, holding out and having careers, getting married and getting divorced. There was a lot of that going on. That was the column's gravitational pull and why people related to it. I mean, again, we're having this conversation in 2021 and I think these things can feel so obvious obvious and basic and all of those kinds of things. But we've got to keep in mind, this was 25 years mm. ago. Like it is not going to be the kind of earth shattering feminism maybe we want to be speaking <laughs> about today, but it was still very huge for the time. 
It wasn't long, Mish, before the column and the book was actually picked up for a TV show. Mm, Darren Starr, who is a writer, director and producer, had come to New York to work on another show in 1995. That show was called Central Park West. It ran for two seasons but was not really proving to be very successful at all. That is around the time that he actually met Candace. Candace was interviewing Darren Starr for a piece at Vogue and when he was looking to take on another New York-based project, he decided to option Candace's column for a HBO series. Now, this is a big gamble. No one at the time knew where the hell to even begin when it came to turning a non-fiction column into a fictional TV drama. Yeah, Candace was actually paid $60,000 for the rights mm. to Sex in the City. And Not in, heaps. No, in hindsight, not enough. But for her at the time, how often do shows get optioned and just nothing comes of them? Mm. You'd take that paycheck and you'd run, having no sense of the kind of like empire that Sex and the City was going to become. In 1998, Sex and the City finally premiered and Candace told The Guardian that it was strange watching the show at first because so many of the stories came from her own life. Yeah, she said, I mean, the first two seasons when I'd be changing my channel and the show was on all the time, I was always laughing because I look back on my life and see directly directly where that story came from. I get a little kick out of it. Like that one where Carrie is smoking pot with a young guy and she spends the night at his house and there's no toilet paper. There's a lot there that wasn't the same as real life, but certainly plucked from it and embellished. I'm sure lots of fans or lots of fans of TV shows in general think the original creator of the story, like the inspiration for the TV show, has all this input, all this creative license, all this kind of direction with where that show goes. It's so interesting to read a quote like that and realise that Candace didn't have a heap of involvement behind the scenes on this show. Yeah, exactly. The show starred Cynthia Nixon as Miranda, Kristen Davis as we know as Charlotte, Kim Cattrall as Samantha and of course Sarah Jessica Parker as Carrie Bradshaw. Now we are going to properly introduce Sarah Jessica Parker to this scandal episode (laughs) right after the break. All right, Zara. So at the time when the Sex and the City script landed on Sarah Jessica Parker's lap, she was 32 years old and she was already a very established actress. So she had appeared in several big movies, a few TV shows and had actually acted on Broadway too. Yeah, so she was really well regarded as an actress, but that actually doesn't mean her pathway to stardom had always been particularly easy. What I didn't know about Sarah Jessica Parker, Mish, is that she did grow up poor in a big family in Cincinnati and she told the New York Times in 2000, I remember being poor. There was no great way to hide it. We didn't have electricity sometimes, we didn't have Christmas sometimes or we didn't have birthdays sometimes or the bill collectors came or the phone company would call and say, we're shutting your phones off. And we were all old enough to either get the calls or watch my mother's reaction or watch my parents shuffling the money around. Mm, She told the Times that she remembered her teacher calling her name out every day in third grade to come get a ticket for a free lunch because her family was really poor and on welfare and couldn't afford that for her. 
Despite all of that, she adored acting. Her mother was also obsessed with the arts, especially the theatre. And so Sarah began acting in plays when she was just eight years old. Despite her parents not having much money, when she was 11, they moved the entire family from Cincinnati to Roosevelt Island in New York City so that she and her siblings could pursue their dreams anyway. Yeah, it's really lovely. Two years later, Sarah actually won a role in the Broadway musical Annie, But her film career actually took off when she scored a role in the 1984 classic movie Footloose. She was just 19 when that movie premiered. So she Mm. was pretty young when she started hitting some big strides. Yeah, and her celebrity star was really big as well. It was really helped along by her being in some pretty high-profile relationships that the tabloid media wrote about often. She dated Robert Downey Jr. for seven years, then in the early 90s briefly dated John F. Kennedy Jr. before meeting her husband, fellow Broadway and movie actor Matthew Broderick. They married in 1997. So when Sarah Jessica Parker received the script for Sex in the City, apparently she was actually very hesitant to take the role. According to the book Sex in the City and Us, she was worried that committing to a TV series would put her movie and theatre career in jeopardy. And it does seem like a very fair concern mm. with a TV series, just like we said before, you have no sense of what it's going to become. And people will often always consider you that character rather than an actress who can take on other roles. It reminds me of all of the Friends actors and despite so many of them being talented, a piece of me will always see them as like Joey, Monica, the characters from Friends. It's very hard to shrug that. The creator and executive producer we mentioned earlier, Darren Starr, offered her a new opportunity. She wouldn't just star in Sex and the City if she took the offer. She could also become a producer of the show and have an opportunity to shape the story. And that's exactly what she did. One other thing that's really interesting to read about the negotiations that occurred to get Sarah Jessica Parker on this show is that she very famously said there was a lot of pressure for her to take her clothes off on the show, but she refused. She actually later told The Hollywood Reporter that she always had a no nudity clause in her contract. She said, I've always had one and it's apropos of absolutely nothing. Some people have a perks list and they are legendary. They have to have white candles in their room. I don't have a crazy list like that. I've always just had a no nudity clause. Which is pretty insane because when you watch that show, you don't even realise that Sarah Jessica Parker is like the one character that really doesn't show her boobs or anything else, whereas every other character does. They really seamlessly integrated this no nudity clause into the storylines. Sarah obviously became Carrie Bradshaw, the protagonist, and was a journalist just like Candace Bushnell. She was very, very closely inspired by Candace Bushnell in real life. She was characterised as an every single woman, serially dating and hotly pursuing ideal love. So that's Sarah Jessica Parker. Let's talk about Kim Cattrall at this point, because we can't tell this story without also explaining who Kim was when Sex in the City first began. Kim herself was also a fairly established actress by the time she was cast in Sex and the City. By the time that offer came about, she'd appeared in films like Star Trek, Police Academy and Mannequin. 
The New York Post argues that she was the biggest name in the cast when the series premiered. Mm. I feel like that is obviously a really subjective thing to say, but history would say surely it was Sarah Jessica Parker if she got the producer's gong as well. Yeah, I mean, they were both the two biggest names. I think there's a bit of a tussle to figure out who got that first spot on the podium, but I would say reading that Sarah Jessica Parker was probably slightly more high profile. Apparently as well, Kim Cattrall was not the producer's first choice to play play Samantha. They had originally wanted to go with a fourth actress in her 30s, but wanted to honour the fact that the character of Samantha was originally intended to be older than the other characters on the show. Like Sarah Jessica Parker was, Kim was apprehensive about taking on the role of Samantha, especially because there was that decade-long age gap between her and her co-stars. She was also nervous about what opportunities playing a character like Samantha might offer. For those who haven't seen the show, Samantha Jones is absolutely the most risque, the most sexual, the most promiscuous character on that series and the kinds of scenes Samantha is involved with are far more edgy than those of her co-stars. Yeah, so she was 41 when she was cast. Now, when Sex and the City first premiered, it's so interesting to go back and read the articles about Mm. how it was considered. The New York Times' first ever article on the show labelled its premise brash, and I quote, and hard-edged. But that is nothing on the Washington Post review written by Tom Shales that read as follows. Sarah Jessica Parker has an in-your-face face. In her new HBO comedy series, Sex and the City, she always seems to be thrusting it forward. She is in love with the camera. Unfortunately, it is unrequited. <sighs> Parker, with her scraggly hair and jutty jaw, is certainly not the worst thing about this smirky, jerky sex con. But she usually seems so light and funny that it's dismaying to see her in bad form, looking like a walking flea market and coming across as subtly as a tsunami. That is the most fucked review of a TV show. So nasty and so personal Mm. that I have ever read. And it's just so ironic that it comes from a middle-aged slash older white man who just would never understand and is never the target audience for Sex and the City. Why are we even regarding an older man's opinion on this show as being relevant? Why did they not get a young woman to review it? Yeah, but it turned out to be a pretty embarrassing review anyway (laughs) because clearly this show grew to be something bigger than anyone could ever imagine. Bigger than Tom Shales for sure. (laughs) He also said that the Sex and the City premiere ep is a hopeless bummer. So he clearly had no idea what was coming. No. As you probably know, Sex and the City became one of the most famous shows of its time and one of the most iconic of the last few decades. As the New York Times wrote in an article looking back on the show after its success, it was, and I quote, a cultural juggernaut that eclipsed both the book and the column. Sex was also on people's minds at the time of the TV show premiering and perhaps this is one of the ingredients that made Sex and the City such a rocket ship. As the New York Times pointed out, this show premiered in the very same year as the Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton scandal unfilled, the biggest sex scandal of all time. Yeah, exactly. This is per the New York Times. The Clinton-Lewinsky affair had made lewd gossip an acceptable form of political commentary and Sex and the City quickly became part of the pundit glossary. Mm. A really interesting kind of comparison there. 
To be clear as well, though, here, the show wasn't an overnight success. Sarah Jessica Parker described it as a nice, slow burn. She told AV Club that the cast finished filming all of season one before it even went to air, so they had no idea whether people were going to like it or not when they were making it. Yeah, the Times also wrote that, and I quote, the show's allure has always relied on the juxtaposition of frivolity with serious concerns. The four women, all financially self-sufficient, have tempered their flip cynicism with hope and their man obsession with a desire for independence, legal and spiritual. For example, in one episode, Miranda discovered that mortgage agreements assumed that women were dependent on the men in their life, whether that be fathers or husbands. In another, Carrie admitted the main reason she liked going to baseball was because she could drink and smoke freely at the stadium without criticism. Like, yes, of course, this is a show about sex, But largely, it's also a show about society and like the societal norms that women, particularly these main four characters, wanted to rail against. Yeah. And also considering stuff like the Bechdel test, how many women at this time are at the front of a major TV show, let alone given space to talk about how much they loved sex? Mm -hmm. The show made all of its four leading ladies absolute household names and made Sarah Jessica Parker one of the hottest stars of television. Within two years of the show, industry execs estimated that she was taking home around 100k to 150k per episode. Mm, All four actresses were also nominated for Emmy Awards during their time on the show. Sarah Jessica Parker won Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series in 2004 and Cynthia Nixon won for Outstanding Supporting Actress as well. Yes, and that was all good and well, right? The show's doing well, the actresses are famous, they're winning awards, but this is sort of where the drama begins. There's quite a lot bubbling below the surface. Sex and the City, as we know, ran for six seasons. It ended in 2004. That was the same year that Friends and Frasier ended. So yes. a big end of time. A lot of grief. End of era. A big grief-filled year in 2004 for great television. The final season did, though, receive some pretty negative reviews from critics. Variety wrote that the four lead women had, and I quote, turned one-dimensional and single-minded and that what once provided universal insights into urban single living is now a dull rehash of a casual sex maniac searching for prey, an annoying, frustrated single mother and a perky divorcee. God, some TV reviews are absolutely scathing. Like you could not be thin-skinned in this business (laughs) at all. Ahead of the show ending... Sarah Jessica Parker told Oprah that she would stay in touch with the three other women on the show, right? She said, sure, we'll always know one another, but I doubt we'll work together again. Well, Cynthia and I might because we worked together before in theatre, but we're forever in one another's lives. I want the same thing for them as I want for myself, new experiences. I'm not worried about them getting roles. They'll go on and do exciting things that scare and challenge them too. An interesting quote from Sarah Jessica Parker that probably gives us a peek behind a curtain of an interesting dynamic and that interview also seemed to suggest that she was the one who wanted to end Sex and the City so that she could spend more time with her family and focus on other roles and projects. When Oprah asked if the other three women on the show were ready for it to end, she replied, I don't think so, but they will be. I really didn't discuss it with them because I didn't think it was my place. I just made the decision and business affairs dealt with telling them not that it was cold. 
So she's really saying that she's kind of the mum of the group. Like it's almost like she's the mum and they're the kids and she's made this decision and they're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, it's like, well, I made the decision to not do the show, therefore they couldn't do it without me. I didn't tell them personally. I just told the people high up who needed to know and they could filter that information down, which I find is really interesting but more interesting in a sense that she's happy to say that publicly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one thing for that to happen behind the scenes but it's another entirely for her to be like, yeah, I just told the people that needed to know and they filtered it down. It's very much revealing that there was not equal footing. Like these actresses were not for – this was not the Friends cast going into the director's office and demanding equal pay so that they were all the same level of power. This is one woman going – I am the show and these are my sidekicks. That is how that quote feels for me anyway. Yeah. This narrative was actually echoed years later in a profile of Sarah in Elle magazine. The publication wrote that the reason she stopped playing Carrie is because she wanted to be challenged as an actor. She said she wanted to be in a job, and I quote, where she could feel incompetent and not worthy and like I really had to struggle. Mm. So clearly she felt too comfortable there. I mean, an ironic quote considering, spoiler alert, they ended up bringing this brand and this show back for years and years later and this character. But all things aside, it very much felt like Sarah Jessica Parker had the power here and she really dictated what happened with Sex and the City. Yeah, it was when the TV series wrapped, so 2004, when this narrative that all was not well between Kim Cattrall and Sarah Jessica Parker started to emerge. And apparently, reports will tell you at the time, the reason they weren't getting along too well was because Kim and Kristen Davis and Cynthia Nixon would have liked to be paid a little more money. Cottrell told Friday Night with Jonathan Ross that she, and I quote, felt after six years it was time for all of us to participate in the financial windfall of Sex and the City. When they didn't seem keen on that, I thought it was time to move on. Now, interesting quote again, because by those words, Kim felt like she was the one who made the decision to stop the show. Yeah, I mean, the subtext there for me is that Kim wanted to be paid the same amount as Sarah, who was the show's frontrunner and producer, and felt like the show was doing incredibly well financially and that the four stars of that show should be paid equally Mm. or just better for that. So in February 2004, the week that the final Sex and the City episode aired, the Washington Post reported that a Sex and the City movie was in development. I didn't realise this happened so quickly. Mm. The executive producer, Michael Patrick King, was reportedly working on a script for the film which would basically pick up where the show left off. Yeah, but by May, so a few months after that, HBO representatives blamed Kim Cattrall for the movie not going ahead. According to those network reps, Kim refused to do the movie which forced them to drop the idea. Kim's representatives responded to these claims. They told USA Today she would have loved to have done the movie and made a deal to do the movie, but waited as long as possible with no script or start date and felt she had to take other offers that were presented to her after the hold period passed. Instead, in that interim period, Kim Cattrall signed on to the Disney original movie, Ice Princess. Bit of a different vibe. (laughs) Yeah, completely different vibe. According to Variety, Kim also wanted to have the right to approve the script, but that was something that the three, I guess, what are we going to call them? Quote, unquote, underling. Yeah, actresses (laughs) were denied. Sarah Jessica Parker was also set to be paid more for the film. And according to Variety, Kim wanted to be paid the same, but was denied. Yeah, to be clear on this... 
the reason that Sarah Jessica Parker was paid more extended beyond her acting role on the show. Presumably, she was going to be paid more for the movie because she was a co-executive producer again. She was going to help produce the movie, which likely would have meant that her time spent on this production would have been far beyond that of Kim Cattrall, who was simply acting in it. And then, of course, we can't forget those iconic photos from the Emmys, Mish, Mm. where you had Cynthia, Sarah and Kristen all sitting together and Kim Cattrall seated completely in a completely different area of the room to them. Yeah, it instantly set up this dynamic of three women on one table, one woman by herself on another side of the room. Three years pass and we hear basically nothing, which is really strange. And then in 2007, reports emerge that a Sex and the City movie is going ahead after all. The Washington Post reported that in July 2007, New Line Cinema, which was a corporate sibling of HBO, who of course did the TV, series was close to sealing a deal to finance and distribute the movie which would star all four original women so Sarah, Kristen, Cynthia and Kim. Variety reported that the network eventually convinced Kim to do the movie by throwing in a TV series with HBO. Now it's hard to actually see going back through whether this deal actually eventuated into anything of substance Mm. but it was used as leverage nonetheless because we've gone back being like okay well what, what was, HBO Yeah, series. what was this TV series and we can't find anything. But at the very least, it was used as leverage, the opportunity to do a TV series in her contract. Yeah. So, of course, the four women would all be working together again for the first time in years. But according to all reports, that did not mean they were all very good friends. Apparently, according to the New York Daily News, things between Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall were icier than ever. Yeah. So Today published this just three months after the movie Revival was announced. A scowling Kim stomped out of a Sex and the City reunion celebration at Butter Restaurant almost as soon as SJP arrived. According to a source, Kim left, just shooting a dirty look at the paparazzi. Meanwhile, Cynthia Nixon did not attend the get-together, but Kristen Davis stayed on to hang with SJP. 30 minutes later, the other two left with big smiles on their faces. Kristen climbed into a town car and Sarah looked like she was walking home. I wonder if that was loaded. Like some of the language in that piece speaks about Kim stomping out of a reunion party. And I wonder if that's kind of a little bit sexist, like some of the ways they're talking about her dirty looks. It almost has an air of like, she has resting bitch face, which is something we never talk about with men. Well, I think this story really demands a lot of nuance, right? Because as we said at the top of this episode, it was very easy for this to be framed as some like cat fight between two women and that it was just like this really sexist narrative that had gone too far. And the reason that we said we wanted to do this is because there was actual substance underneath it all. But I still don't think we can tell this story without also pointing out that a lot of the coverage, yes, was still sexist. Like, mm. I think both things can be true. There was definitely tension between Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall, but just as equally, the reporting was probably quite extreme about it. Yeah. And it was almost like everyone was so shocked that these women weren't best friends. Like we expect every woman who works with another woman to become best friends with her. So all of this filming for the first Sex and the City movie takes place in the latter half of 2007. But once the film is done and the women have spent all those months together, 
things were not any better. In May 2008, when filming officially wrapped, The Mirror published a piece titled Kim Cattrall and Sarah Jessica Parker Avoid Each Other at After Party. That article read, despite the champers, canapes and male dancers, Miss Cattrall, who plays Samantha, couldn't bring herself to chat to rival Sarah Jessica Parker. It was pretty strange, said an insider. They made such a show of unity on the red carpet earlier. See, even just like referring to Sarah Jessica Parker as a rival rather Mm. than just somebody she didn't get along with. A colleague. Yeah, like they couldn't have this conversation without assuming that there was like competition there. Yeah, so you've got some tabloids publishing unnamed sources generating a bit of a whisper network about the prickly nature of Sarah Jessica Parker's relationship or friendship with Kim Cattrall or lack thereof. But this kind of news, if you can even call it that, was all anonymously sourced and mostly shrugged at, not just by other media publications, but also by loyal Sex and the City fans. Yeah, exactly. But within five days of that Mirror article coming out, on May 19, 2008, another publication joined the chorus. This time it was the highly trusted, very reputable newspaper, The Telegraph. They, Mish, were about to give this scandal a whole lot more levity. Yeah, but all of that, Zara, on next week's episode of Scandal, we cannot wait. Thank you for listening to this first part of what will be a two-part series. And thank you, of course, to our magnificent researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, who did so much good work on this series. Zara, I'm going to go binge and just like that. Yeah, I know. It's amazing timing for it. Guys, if you want to come and follow us on TikTok, we are at shameless underscore podcast. We are also on Instagram at shameless podcast, where we will have a whole gallery of nostalgic throwbacks for you. But in the meantime, we will be back in your ears on Thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.